praise the Lord. Take your Bibles out if you would, please. Turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. This is going to be a fun message today, I hope. I hope it's received with the intention that it's intended. <laughs> I don't know how this is going to come out, but I'm just going to go for it and see how, where it lands there. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17 says, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and had followed the Baals, plural. In the King James says, Baalim, Baalim. When you see I am, it just means plural. In other words, the gods of the Baal worship. There were more than one. Verse 19, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eats at Jezebel's table. So these were actually Jezebel's prophets. She was a self-proclaimed prophetess, Jezebel was. And these were her prophets. So... Uh, I actually borrowed this sermon from another man. I can't, he preached it. I'm not going to tell you who he is because I've gotten to the point now that I don't want to, I don't want to talk about people. I'm like Joe. I don't want to talk about people still alive because they, they might mess up. We've, we've had a few that disappointed us and I'll wait till he's dead and then I'll tell you who he is just in case he messes up. But he preached this sermon, and I borrowed it from him, and I thought this, it was some pretty good illustrations. So if it goes wrong, we'll blame him. Amen. On October the 29th, 1960, there was a young man that came on the American scene. Some of you might recognize his name. I, I was talking to somebody this week just to kind of get a, put out some feelers of who knows who this man is and who doesn't. Who knows who Cassius Clay is? Wow, quite a few of you. Okay, well, Cassius Clay came on the scene as a professional debut in 1960 on October the 29th. In 1961, he met up with Gorgeous George, a pro wrestler. And if you know anything about pro wrestlers, they're more acrobats than they are actually wrestlers. They, now some people might get offended at that, but you don't hit a guy over the head with a folding chair and then he jumps up and beats you up. I mean, that just... You know, you beat some guy that he can't stand up, and all of a sudden, ta-da, he jumps up, and then he beats you up. I mean, they can do some acrobats now. It's amazing some of the feats that these guys can perform. But anyway, Gorgeous George told Cassius Clay, said that you need to use wrestling jargon when you're being interviewed. And this young 20-some year, he's like 20, 21 years old at this time, he took his advice, and Cassius Clay talked more smack than any pro boxer ever in history. He was loved by some and he was hated by others because of the taunting and this presumed arrogance that he had. And I don't know if it was real or if it was just theatrics. And, and that's up to you. I, I really don't have a dog in this race. I mean, I not like him or don't like him. I, he is just what he is. He did what he did. But in 1963, Clay had become the top contender for the title. And he was going to fight Sonny Liston, who was at that time the heavyweight champion of the world. And so October, on February the 25th, 1964, in Miami uh, Beach, Cassius Clay 
faced uh, Sonny Liston and defeated him and took the title and became the heavyweight champion of the world at age 21, or age 22, I'm sorry. There was one other boxer that won the heavyweight at age 21, and Mike Tyson won the heavyweight championship at age 20, being the youngest heavyweight contender to win the, the title. Then in 1964, he changed his name to Cassius X to pay homage to his friend and mentor, Malcolm X, who watched his fights from the sideline. Then a month after he defeated Liston, he declared that he was officially converting to Islam. He told the world that his name henceforth would be called Muhammad Ali. He defended his title for the next three years, and then in 1967, on March the 22nd, he was stripped of his title due to his refusal to be drafted in the U.S. Army. He, at that point, became the hero of the liberal left anti-established movement. Now, I don't know how you feel about all of that. At that time, in, 19, in 1967, when this was going on, and the years that followed, there was a lot of Vietnam vets coming back from Vietnam. And instead of receiving a ticker tape parade and being received as heroes, the American people, some of the American people, met them at the airport, throwing things at them, spitting on them, calling them names. Guys, I'm not in that group, I'm going to tell you. I have always honored and respected our soldiers. Now, Cassius Clay said, the Vietnamese has never done anything to me. The Vietnamese has never called me, and then he used a, a slang word that's related to his race. And I thought, well, every black soldier that went to Vietnam could make that same statement. They may not have believed in Vietnam any more than you, but when their country called on them, they stepped up and went and fought for their country because they were asked to. So I have no respect for that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I just I had no respect for that. So in 1967, his boxing license was also suspended by the state of New York. And then and later that year, he was convicted on June the 20th of draft evasion, and he was sentenced to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. He paid a bond and remained free for the remainder of the time that uh, they were debating and, and uh, going over this case in court as he was um, appealing the case in court. He was systematically denied a boxing license in every state in America and stripped of his title and his passport. So he's no longer the heavyweight champion of the world. He can't fight in America. For the next three years, he was not allowed to box from age 25 to age 28. Now... <clears throat> 1971, I was a junior in high school that year. The conviction was overturned. And that was a slap in the face of a lot of American GIs who went and fought in Vietnam and didn't want to be there. But they went anyway. And his sentence was overturned. So in March, in, in March the 8th, in Madison Square Garden in 1971, he is to face off against Smokin' Joe Frazier. How many of you know who Smokin' Joe Frazier is? He was at that time the heavyweight champ, boxing champion of the world. He was undefeated, 26-0. He was 5 foot 11 and a half. He weighed 205 pounds. Uh, Muhammad Ali was 6 foot 3, weighed 215 pounds. They're the same age. Both of them are undefeated. Ali's got a 31-0 and 0 record with 25 knockouts. 
Joe Frazier's got a, 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 a 26-0 record with 23 knockouts. And so they're getting ready to face off each, each other in, in the fight that is called the fight of the century. And although it wasn't the fight of the century, that was what they, they uh, called it. The fight of the century is going to happen actually between these same two men some years later. But it's called the fight of the century. These two undefeated fighters are going to face each other, and both of them have the legitimate claim as a heavyweight champion. That fight was broadcasted in, tw- in 35 foreign countries. The promoters granted two, 760 press uh, passes to that. The f- people were watching this all over the world. People that didn't, weren't even boxing fans was going to watch this fight. To my knowledge, I was a junior in high school. I had never watched a boxing match in my life. I could have cared less. All I cared about was pretty girls and good-looking cars. I didn't care if two guys got in there and beat each other's brains out. They were both African-Americans, so it wasn't racial. But because he represented the, the anti-establishment, and in my mind, anti-American, and they said Joe Frazier represented the conservative right and the patriotic Americans, the country was divided on who was pulling for who. And so this was going to be watched by people everywhere, mainly due to the theatrics of the name-calling by Muhammad Ali. What most people don't know is that Joe Frazier befriended Ali and gave him money to survive after Ali was stripped of his title and barred from boxing. Frazier was a friend to him when everybody else abandoned him. Most people don't know that. He even advocated for his reinstatement into the boxing world. In return, Ali portrayed Frazier as a, quote, dumb tool of the white establishment. This was the rhetoric leading up to the fight. He said, Frazier's too ugly to be the champ. That's the kind of smack he would talk. I don't know if you know. Some of it was almost comical, but some of it was like, one day somebody's going to knock this guy's block off, you know. Come on, I know you're Christians, but didn't you? Come on, be honest. You got in the flesh a little bit. He said, Frazier is too dumb to be a champion. He frequently called him an Uncle Tom, frequently and repeatedly called him a gorilla. He would say things like, I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Frazier can't hit what Frazier can't see. They say Frazier's good, but I'm twice as nice. I'm going to stick to Frazier like white on ice. He was, I mean, it was comical in a way. He was poetic, you know. But he really crossed the line when he said the only people rooting for Joe Frazier are white people in suits, Alabama sheriffs, and members of the Ku Klux Klan. He insulted most of the American people, all of the American people, black and white, that's not pulling for him. He said, I'm fighting for the little man in the ghetto. In response, Joe Frazier, pounding his fist into his hand, just said, what does he know about the ghetto? So on March the 8th, 1971, they, the two of them faced off in the fight of the, uh, of the century. And I watched it. And Alcock couldn't wait to get back to school. Uh, Joe Frazier stayed on his feet for 15 rounds. Ali went down twice. He went down in the 11th round when he slipped. But in the 15th round, Joe Frazier caught him with a left hook, and they thought he'd broke his jaw. The whole side of his head swole up, knocked him down, and he won by a unanimous decision. Joe Frazier was legitimate now, the heavyweight champion of the world with a 27-0 record. 
Ali is now 31 and 1. He lost his first fight to smoking Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier would lose the title two years later to George Foreman, who was a Christian, by the way. Joe, Joe, uh, Joe Frazier and Ali would meet two more times on J January the 28th, 1974, Madison Square Garden, when Ali beat Joe Frazier by unanimous decision. Ali met George Foreman in 74, regained the title, and then in, September, in October the 1st, 1975, they fought in what was called the Thriller of Manila. How many of you remember the Thriller of Manila? They went to the Philippines, and it was called the Thriller of Manila. Now, this was the fight of the century. There were more punches thrown in that heavyweight boxing match than any heavyweight boxing match ever. These two men, they hated each other, and they literally tried to beat each other to death. They, it was just nothing but out-and-out out rage against each other. The end of the fight, in the end of the 14th round, Joe Frazier's manager would not let him return to the ring because both eyes were swollen shut. He still had stamina. If you ever watch Ali Fies, his at the end of his 15th, 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th round, his punches were getting real sluggish. Joe Frazier still, I mean, he knocked Ali down in the 15th round. He still hit like a hammer. And he still had stamina, he still had strength, and he was ready to return to the fight, and his manager wouldn't let him because he couldn't see, and he was going out blind. Ali came out of the corner in the 15th round, held his arms up in victory, and collapsed to the canvas in exhaustion. He said later it was the closest that he'd ever felt that he was going to die in his life. We don't know how that would have happened, how that would have turned out had Frazier returned to the ring. We will never know. But Ali won the thrill of Manila. Now, what has all that got to do with preaching this morning? Thank you, they said. History is filled with contests between two enemies, battles between opposing forces. And today, I'm going to go cover an ongoing battle in the Bible between two opposing forces similar to this, but greater yet. In a message I have titled, The Thriller on the Hilla. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, you're so good to us, Lord. You really are. And Lord, when we are faced with enemies, Lord, that are so much stronger than we are, God, we realize that we don't stand there alone. Lord, the, the commander-in-chief of the greatest army of all creation has got our back. Lord, there's more of us than there are of them. And God, you cannot be defeated. Lord, you can't even be knocked down. Lord, they can't even hit you. God, hallelujah. And God, you're on our side, Lord. And may we understand that this morning. Lord, I, I don't know how I'm going to get all this done. But Lord, I just know that there's a message in this, God, of hope and encouragement. And Lord, that when we leave this place, Lord, may we be encouraged, Lord, and have hope. Knowing, God, that we are serving the winner. Now, Father, anoint me to preach the word. Anoint us to hear it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, this week, there were several things that caught my attention uh, that directed the message this morning. One was something that I shared several weeks ago, and it had to do with a violin. If you, if you 
Joe, come up here and give me a hand, if you would, please. I usually have my lapel mic on, but I'm going to get you to hold this microphone. And, and I'm going to really do, I'm going to step out here and do something crazy. I am no Megan, okay? Don't, don't you listen to this. Did you hear that back there, Rob? Did you hear that gig? How about over there? Did you, hear, did you hear guys hear that? Of course you heard it. It went from this string. I'm not going to try to play a tune, although I can go through the chords, I think. Let's don't do that. <laughs> you know the amazing thing about that? Is once I stroked that across that string and you heard it, you can't put that back in that string. I could preach a whole different sermon right now. Once it's left and you've heard it, you can't put it back in that string. And I, I heard that a few weeks ago over there. She's playing that violin, and I heard that, and it occurred to me that that sound touched every part of this room, and it was just a God moment. It was a word from the Lord, and I heard the Lord speak to my spirit and said, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return into me void, but it will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereon I send it. That's Isaiah 55. Now, let's read that together. Isaiah 55. Let's go ahead and read all the way down to that from verse 1. Ho! Exclamation mark. He's trying to get your attention here. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You that have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money on what is not bread? Or your wages on what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Decline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And he's talking to the children of Israel. Okay, verse 4. Indeed. I have given you as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. And nations, plural, who you do not know, you shall run, um, who do not know you, I'm sorry, shall run to you. That would be America, church. Are you seeing this? Is included in that. Nations that don't know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The blessing is on Israel. Amen. Come on, somebody. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will be abundantly, he will abundantly pardon. He's talking about people that had served God, left God, and returning to the Lord. Amen. He's talking to those who know him. All right, so this is for the church. If you drift away from God, he said, come back to him. And he will abundantly 
pardon. Church, that's a message right there. I don't care what you've done. It's not over. God can still use you. And a lot of, a lot of us, myself included, need to get that. Because we can beat ourselves up so bad when we fail and fail and fail again. How could God ever use me? And he says, come to me and I will abundantly pardon you. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there. It's just like the sound from that violin string. Once it leaves, it's gone. But it waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, if I plant a kernel of corn in the ground, it's not just going to produce another kernel of corn. It's going to multiply seed after its own kind and bread to eat. All right? Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God sends his word, and it's going to multiply in you, church. It's going to multiply in me. It's going to produce more seed of, after its own kind. In other words, the word that gives me life is going to go out from me and give others life and give life here and give life here and produce more seed that we can feed on the things of God, the bread that gives us life. How many of you are glad you found the bread of life? Amen. Praise God. Now, there, that's one thing that caught my attention. I, I, I just can't. I haven't gotten past that yet. His word doesn't return void. And the second thing that caught my attention was at the end of the service last week when I preached on this is that. This is that. And I was talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It's going to be in the last days. And when we see things happen, just like that example of hearing that violin and the word of the Lord coming, that is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember that sermon last week? I got some good feedback on that. A lot of you like that. It ministered to me, I'm going to tell you. Sometimes I'm preaching to me. If you don't get a thing out of it, I'm getting a whole lot. Amen? Because I preach to myself a whole lot. Amen? Especially on straightening it up and getting it right. I need that probably more than anybody in here. But at the end of the service, Jeannie had a word from the Lord. She came up and she said something that resonated with me. We take it for granted that everybody knows. And I heard that. And I thought about that this week. We take it for granted that everybody knows. Now, I've preached this sermon before on Mount Carmel. And I thought, you know, everybody knows that. Church, listen to me. I don't claim to be the smartest guy in the room. I don't even think of myself as the smartest guy in the room. In fact, if I know what I know, what little bit I know, I do assume you already know. And more. I'm not, I, there's many of you. I remember when I first started preaching, I, I told Brother, Brother Sinclair, he was over the home mission board. I said, Brother, I'm just, I'm not the guy to do this. 
because I, 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 I felt like the dumbest guy in the room. I'm like, there's people in the room that's so intelligent and smart. And he, he said, <laughs> he said, Bernie, there's people in your church smarter than you. I'm like, yeah, well, tell me something I don't already know. Thanks a lot. He's, he said, there's people in the church can do a better job than you. I'm like, well, I was feeling pretty bad when I came in here, but I'm feeling even worse now. He said, but Bernie, they didn't call, God didn't call them. He called you. And it just, it just went off in my spirit, you know. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. And so she was right. You take it for granted that people know, and I take it for granted. You know what I know and then and a whole lot more. But when it comes to the Word of God, there may be an exception there. Because I spend most of my life studying and absorbing and meditating on it, plus the word of the Lord coming to me to, uh, to expound on it. I'm, I just might know a few things about the word of God. You may not know, maybe. And so I, I think it's important for all of us to just assume that people don't know the word of God. And that was proven to me this week as I was sharing some Bible stories with a gentleman. He was a black gentleman I was working with. His name was Cornell. The guy was having a terrible time remembering his name. I was calling him Cornwall and, and something. I don't know, but his name is Cornell, and he was just a really, really nice guy. And I was working with him, and I started telling him some Bible stories. And I said, well, you know the story about such? So he's like, no. He didn't know them, you know. And so, and he, and he was like a sponge. He was soaking it up. And, and we couldn't talk for so long. And so, because we had, to, I've been helping a friend of Mike's out uh, doing some electrical work. And he was one of the guys. And we were supposed to be working, not preaching, Mike. Right? So we're trying to get some work done. And I had to, I, I couldn't tell him so much. And then we got broke up. And, and I didn't get to tell him the rest of the story. Because I was telling him the story about the, the showdown on Mount Carmel. Between Ahab and Elijah. And so, Cornell, if you're listening, friend, this is for you. Okay, because I told him we live stream every Sunday. I want you to tune in and listen. And so I was telling him the story about the, the, the showdown between Elijah and Ahab, the thriller on the hill, Mount Carmel. Now, let's look at the contenders, because we're going to assume that you don't know this story, and you don't know the characters in this story. But first, we've got Ahab. He's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two. You've got the northern kingdom, and ten tribes in the north called Israel, and two tribes in the south called Judah. And they've got two different kings. Jehoshaphat is the king in the south at this time. Ahab is the king in the north. Okay, but they're all Hebrews. They're all of the house of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're all family, but they're divided into two kingdoms. Ahab is in the northern kingdom. Now, his wife is Jezebel. She is a Gentile. She is the daughter of Ethbel, a Sidonian king. So she is a Sidonian princess. And, and some people say, well, he should have not married a Gentile. And they weren't supposed to marry Gentile women. But you could marry a Gentile woman if she would become proselyte. In other words, if she would switch over to your faith. We know that's true because of Ruth, right? Ruth was one of the ancestral grandmothers of Jesus, she was a Moabite woman, a Gentile. But she changed over and accepted the Jewish God and became a, 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 Jew, a, a Jew by faith, okay? Also, Rahab, who was a prostitute, right, in, in Jericho. She was an ancestor, a grandmother of Jesus. 
a Gentile woman. So it wasn't the fact that she was a Gentile that made her wicked. It was the fact that she continued to worship the gods of her father, Ethbel. She was a Baal worshiper, and she worshiped Asherah. So you got Jezebel and you got Ahab. Now Jezebel's prophets, there was 450 prophets of Baal. Now Baal had many different names in the Bible and many different symbols of him. The bull, the ram, the Mesopotamian Hadad. He's also the Greek equivalent of Zeus. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is talking to the church of Thyatira and said, you allowed that woman Jezebel to seduce my prophets and eat things offered to idols and commit fornication. Well, Jezebel's been dead for thousands of years. All right, so he's talking about a spirit of Jezebel. And one of the gods that they worship in uh, Thyatira was Sembethi, which was just another name for Baal. He was the sun god and he was also the god of prosperity. Have you heard anything about prosperity in modern day Christianity? Come on. Need to be careful with that. Because very easily can go into a form of Baal worship. Worshiping money. Now, it is true, God wants you to prosper and be in health. We get that. You're blessed and all that. But when you start making money your God, you're a bell worshiper. Amen? So we've got to be careful with that. All right, then the other was 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah was the fertility goddess. She's also known as Ishtar, Diana. If you remember, Paul went into Ephesus and they started saying, praise Diana over and over. Well, that's the same goddess, Venus. How many of you remember the song, Venus, goddess of love that you are, surely the things I ask can't be great a task, right? That's another name for, for, for uh, Asherah, Esther or Easter, Easter bunnies, eggs. What have they got to do with the resurrection? Nothing. Nothing. By the time King James came along, the Catholic Church had merged pagan religion with Christianity. If you look in the Greek, it, 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 the, the word Easter is actually in the book of Acts. It, doesn't, it shouldn't be there because it's, the word there should be resurrection. Easter is a reference to Esther or uh, Asherah, the fertility goddess. So we don't have egg hunts here. We don't have Easter bunnies. Amen. Call me radical, whatever you want to. I just, I know that's not a good thing. Amen. Come on. We have a resurrection Sunday. Amen. Come on, somebody. You love me or get mad at me. I don't know. And then the church of Thyatira, there was the equivalent to Asherah called Sambethi, the goddess. Okay, so there's your characters, the prophets. And then you've got Elijah. Now, at this point, Elijah has prayed that there would be no rain, and there hasn't been a drop of rain or even dew. For three years. Now you imagine a drought three years long. What would that do to the tree farm, Timmy? You'd be hunting another job, wouldn't you, brother? Trees don't grow without water. Corn don't grow without water. Beans don't grow. Cows can't eat. Grass don't grow. Amen. So it hadn't rained for three years. And during this time, Ahab, who's the king of the northern kingdom, happens to be the commander-in-chief of the greatest military force on the earth at that time. you got the Syrian army, you got the northern army, you got the southern army. He is, he's got a lot of soldiers at his disposal. And he's looking for Elijah. Because he knows Elijah prayed and we hadn't had rain for three years. Find him. And he's looking for him everywhere and he can't find him. And then there's another character in the story named Obadiah. 
Now, Obadiah is uh, <laughs> something funny just ran through my head, and I'm not going to say it. Oh, <laughs> don't do it, Bernie. Obadiah finds Elijah. And Elijah says, go and tell your master I'm here. And he said, oh, oh, Elijah. And he fell on the ground before Elijah because Obadiah loves the Lord. In fact, when Jezebel killed the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of God, Obadiah took 100 prophets and put 50 in this cave and 50 in that cave, and he's been feeding them. So he's a good man. And he says, Elijah, please don't ask me to do that. He says, I'm going to go get him and tell him you're here, and the Spirit of the Lord's going to take you somewhere else, and I'm going to bring him back, and you're going to be gone, and he's going to kill me. And Elijah says, by the living God, I will not go anywhere. I'm going to be right here when he gets back. And in verse 17, let's look at it again. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord and have followed Baal. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel. In other words, I want the whole kingdom here. I want everybody here. And you bring with them the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Bring them here. And so they've... It's the thriller on the hilla, and they're all there, all right? Now, what happens at the thriller on the hilla? He said, all right, we're going to settle this once and for all. You think Baal is God? You think Asherah is God? Then let's prove it. You build an altar out of stone. You put wood on it. You kill a bull and put a bull on it. I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to put stones there. I'm going to put wood there, and I'm going to put a bull there. And then we're going to cry out to the God that we believe in. And the one that answers by fire, let him be God. They accepted the challenge. And the, re- the match began. And so they went first. All right, you go first. And so they're dancing around. You got 850 men out here dancing around. And they're shouting out to Baal and shouting out to Asherah to send fire. Then Elijah pulls an Ali on them. He starts talking smack. He's like, why don't you cry a little louder? Maybe he can't hear you. They took knives and started cutting themselves with so that the blood would flow. Let me tell you something about serving a pagan God. He requires your blood. The God that I serve provides his blood. Come on, somebody. They're cutting themselves and they're dancing around. He said, maybe you need to go wake him up. Maybe he's gone to sleep. They're getting madder and they're dancing around and they're cutting and they're screaming and carrying on. And he said, well, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. That's in the original Hebrew. That's exactly what he's saying. Go knock on the door. Maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Smack talk. My God going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Amen. He's telling them. Finally, when they've exhausted themselves and nothing has happened, he says a simple prayer. God, Prove this day 
that you are God. Fire came from heaven. It lapped up the bull, the wood, the water. Oh, let me tell you this. I forgot this. He, before he did that, he said, Pour, this is the most precious thing they have. Pour barrels of water on the sacrifice. They did. He said, do it again. They did it again. Do it again. Three times. There was a trench around the sacrifice, a bushel deep, full of water. And then he prayed, God, prove that you're God. He lapped up the water, lapped up the stones, and then he went and lapped up the other sacrifice. Then he told the people of Israel, take the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah down to the Kidron Brook and kill them. And they slaughtered 850 prophets that day. The thriller on the hiller. Now Ahab, who is not much of a man, he is the spineless, weak, whiny, weak excuse of a man. Goes back home to Jezebel, this witchy woman. And she says, well, hey, honey. How did things go at the thriller on the hiller? The guys, you know how this works. You kind of talk around and say, well, you know, you're trying to find a way to get this out. And you think if you talk long enough, it'll, you know, the sun was shining and it was early. I had a few clouds in the sky and, you know, and I, I didn't kill anybody. She's like, what? I, I didn't, I didn't, but you know how people are when they get excited. You know, I mean, there was stuff going on, there were prophets dancing, and they were cutting themselves. She's like, ooh, that sounds good. They were praying, and Elijah was praying, and fire came down from heaven. And she's like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, there's bulls burning, there's wood burning, there's, there's rocks burning, and people killing prophets, and they're all dead. And that was just another day at the office. I'm going to take a shower. She's like, wait a minute, you want, get back over here. What do you mean prophets were killed? She's like, well, yeah, there were some prophets killed. What prophets? Well, some of the Baal prophets and some of the Asherah prophets. Well, how many? All of them. She said, All of my prophets are dead. Look at verse, verse 1 of chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel that all Elijah had done. Also how that he had executed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods, little G-O-D-S, gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and sat and came and sat under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. You see, a lot of people says, well, he's running from a woman. But you got to understand, Elijah knows who's really in charge of the armies of Israel. 
It wasn't Ahab. Amen. Come on. The, 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 what is it on the big fat Greek wedding? It says, yeah, he's the head of the house, but I'm the neck that turns the head. Well, Jezebel was the neck that turned the head. Amen. Come on. And so he's, he's running because he knows that the greatest military force in the world is looking for him to kill him. Now, when I read this story, church, I don't know about you, but this gives me hope. One of the greatest men in the Old Testament showed his humanity. He has just conquered four, 850 prophets. And after this great encounter with God, this great revival meeting that he's just had, the outpouring of God's power, he's sitting under a bush hopeless. That makes me have hope. Amen. Come on. Has anybody ever been there? On the hill, he could conquer the world. Now he's sitting in the wilderness. Because he went, he didn't just get away from her. He, Samaria is in the northern part of Israel. He ran all the way through Israel to the border, crossed into Judah, and went as far as he could go into Judah to Beersheba, the southernmost point of the nation of Judah, and left his servant there, and then went another day's journey into the wilderness. He's as far as he can get away from her. And he's sitting there hopeless. He's given up. He's got no faith, no courage, no will to fight, no will to go on, no vision for the future. He just wants out. Anybody know what that's like? I do. I know what that's like. Been there, done that. Amen. Come on. Some of you may be there right now. There's things in your life. It's not going the way you thought, the way you planned, the way you hoped. I can think right now of three marriage relationships that's just like that right now. Had a great marriage. Great Things going great. And now they see absolutely no hope. They just want out. But I'm here to tell you, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Come out of your corner and fight. It's not over. We're still in the fight. God doesn't forsake you under the juniper tree. God doesn't forsake you in the wilderness. The victories of God after the wilderness can be greater than the victories before the wilderness. Let me say that again. The victories of God after the wilderness experience can be greater than the victories before the wilderness. I know that the victories after the wilderness can be greater than the victories before the wilderness. I've seen it in my own life. There's been times that I'm sitting under the juniper tree and I just want out. But because I didn't get out, I saw the hand of God do greater things than he did before. And church, I'm here to, uh, to guarantee you, to promise you that it can be better than before if you just don't stop fighting. You got to stay in the fight. Elijah sits under the juniper tree and an angel shows up and wakes him up and he has made a cake on a stone. He says, eat this, Elijah. You're going to need this strength. I call it angel food. 
And he went in the strength of that food. I don't know what he fed him, but he went in the strength of that food. I think the story, if I remember it well, it was 40 days. Because God says, you want to know what the wilderness is like? Listen, there is some training that takes place in the wilderness. There's some things you can learn in the wilderness you can't learn in any other place. And so God instructs him to leave the wilderness of, of the southern kingdom of, of Judah and sends him into the Sinai Peninsula to Mount Horeb. He said, you want to be in a wilderness? I'm going to send you into a real wilderness. And so he goes there in the strength of that food, and he sits in a cave on Mount Horeb. He's back on the hill again. Amen. Come on. The thriller on the hilla. Just a different hilla. He's in the big wilderness. And look at, look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for you, Lord. God of hosts, the children of Israel has forsaken you. They've forsaken your covenant, God. They've tore down your idols. They killed your prophets with a sword, and I'm the only one left. Just me, God, I'm the only prophet. I might be the only Jew. I don't know. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? Just me, God. Everybody's left you. And they're trying to kill that woman. She said, she's going to kill me, God. Verse 11, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain. It tore into the mountain and broke the rocks and pieces before the Lord. Listen to me, church. Great outpouring of God's power. Great revival. Whoa, got a touch from God. Whoa, great stuff. God was in that. Whoa. And sometimes he is. Come on, he just answered fire from heaven, bulls, wood, stone, water, everything. God was in it. But this time, God's not always in all of the woohoo. He says, but the Lord wasn't in it. The Lord was not in the wind. After it, the wind, a great earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. After that, the earthquake was a fire. I don't know if it was a volcano or what it was, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, a still, small voice. Church say violin. A violin. Still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he goes through the same thing again. I'm the only one God. Sometimes God's got to tell us more than one time. Amen. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Ahab and Elijah, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab goes out and he sees a vineyard next to his kitchen. He thought, boy, that'd be a good place to raise an herb garden. So he goes to Naboth, the owner of the vineyard, said, sell me that vineyard. And Naboth said, Ahab, I, I can't sell you that vineyard. It is an inheritance. See, according to Jewish law, it was handed down. He is more the keeper of it than the owner of it. And he is to pass it on to his children. You can't by law sell it. Ahab knows this. He knows Jewish custom. 
He says, I, I can't sell that to you. It's my inheritance. That'll be passed down to my son. So Ahab, the king of Israel now, goes home, lays on his bed, and faces the wall, pouting. And Jezebel comes and is like, what is the matter with you? He said, Nabal won't tell me his thing. <laughs> so witchy woman says, that's all right, honey. You just lay there and leave it to me. So then she perjures herself, raises up witnesses against him, accuses him of treason and blasphemy, and has him stoned to death in that same vineyard. And she thinks she's got what she wants. Elijah's out of the store. My my husband's happy. But Jezebel's got a problem. Elijah has been in training. And he's ready for round two. And he comes back and he finds Ahab. And he said, Ahab, because of what you did, thus saith the Lord, the dogs will lick your blood in Naboth's vineyard where you spill Naboth's blood. And as for that witchy woman, the dogs are going to eat her bones at the wall of Jezreel. Pow. Knocked them down the 15th round. The problem is Elijah doesn't see the fulfillment of that for three years now. How many of you have had, you just knew God told you something. And you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Like, Lord, you promised that to me. You're waiting. I, as I scan the room, I can, I can think of a couple people, you're still waiting on your answer. He waited for three years before Ahab finally, he goes into battle. They, they, they're fighting against Assyria, and Assyria said they're going to kill Ahab. That's the goal. He, he, the Syrian king tells them, that you've got one objective in this battle, kill Ahab. And Ahab calls the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, you're at kindred. Can we, will you go fight with me? He's like, sure, we're, we're family. I'll go fight with you. He said, but, but isn't there some prophets that we can, we can ask about this battle? He said, sure. So he brings in all, Ahab brings in all of his prophets, and all of his prophets, they're yes men. They're all saying, yeah, go. Fight the battle and prosper. And then Jehoshaphat says, isn't there yet another prophet in Israel? And he says, yeah, there's one, but he always prophesies evil over me. Come on, he's, he's like a person that tells the truth, whether you like it or not. Amen? Come on, I can think of somebody, a former leader of our nation used to do that. Tells the truth, whether you like it or not. Amen? Come on. He said, well, call him. Well, his name was Micah. Micah comes in, and he said, he's mocking him. He's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. You're going to prosper. And he said, have I not told you to always tell me what the Lord said? He says, all right, I'm going to tell you what the Lord said. He said, I see Israel like sheep without a shepherd. And so he says, take him, lock him in prison, feed him bread and water until I return from the battle. I'll show him. So he goes into the battle and he says, Jehoshaphat, I'm going to disguise myself like another soldier so they won't know that I'm a king. You dress in your kingly array because they didn't know Jehoshaphat was in the battle. And so they go into the battle and the Syrian army, they see the king. Only it's not Ahab, it's Jehoshaphat. And so they're coming after him. Jehoshaphat's like, ah! And he takes off running and they're catching up with him. They're like, that's not Ahab. So they break off from chasing him. And so since they can't find him, a soldier just by chance takes a bow and goes, and just shoots an arrow into the air. And it strikes Ahab in the hole in his armor. 
and he falls over in the chariot wounded. And he says, take me out of the battle so that they won't see that I'm wounded. He dies on the way back to Samaria, and they take his chariot to Naboth's vineyard and take water and wash the blood out of his chariot in Naboth's vineyard, and the dogs come and lick his blood according to the word of God. So shall my word be. It goes forth. God doesn't lie. And what he says he will do, he will do, church. Every time. Everybody say every time. Well, that's fine. That's half the prophecy. But what about that witch of the north? Uh, you think expect to see monkeys flying around her, you know, when she comes in. I mean, even though the Wizard of Oz, Wicked Witch of the North, well, that's Jezebel. What about her? Elijah will not live to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Church, listen, just because you don't see it fulfilled doesn't mean it will not happen. If God said it, it's going to happen. Because Elijah is going to anoint his successor, Elisha. And Elisha is going to send another young prophet whose name we don't even know. He gives him a vial of oil. He says, take this and you go to a certain city and you go in and you anoint Jehu king. You don't talk to anybody. You turn around and you run back to me. So he takes the oil. He goes in. Jehu's sitting around with all his pals and they're talking. He comes. He's like, Jehu, come here. He walks in. He's like, yeah, what do you want? He just, he dumps all this oil over his head. Says, you are now the king of Israel. He turns around and runs. I mean, yeah. He comes back in. His buddy's like, what do he want? He's like, I don't know, man. He said, I'm the king of Israel. You're the king? See, they already got a king. Guess who it is? Jezebel's boy. Mm-hmm. You're the king? Yeah. Well, how many of you have watched Chosen? Huh? The last scene where, where, where Peter says, you told him? You told him? It's time? It's time. And he's like, all right, let's do it, because he thinks they're going to overthrow the Roman government. He's like, all right, let's throw down. It's time to go. He doesn't get it, but his, his friends are like, you're the king. Right, let's do this. And so they take off. Jehu kills Jezebel's boy. Then he kills his friend, another king. The king He's done kill both kings. And then he rides up to Jezreel on his horse. I can see in my mind this big Andalusian stallion. I don't know what he was riding on, but this is my, just don't mess with it, all right? How many of you know what an Andalusian is? Zorro. Have you watched Zorro? That big black, big mane. Just, he's high-stepping, man. He's coming up in there. And Jezebel's up in the wind, and she's like, and she's actually mocking him. It's like, what you've done is horrible. You're going to be punished for that. And he says, is there anybody else up there? And there's eunuchs. Oh, there's a message just in that. Because, see, she neutered her husband. I don't mean to be vulgar, but. And, and that's what a eunuch is, if you understand what I mean. They've been. Uh, you got the picture. So is there anybody else up here in these two eunuchs? Said, yeah, we're up here. He's like, are you on God's side? They, we, we certainly are. I said, throw her out. And they grabbed her. Now, I don't know. I, I got my own version of this. I think they grabbed her and ran back halfway across the room. They got to run and go. And said, Choo! And she's like, she floated like a butterfly. 
and splattered like a gnat on the windshield. The Bible said, the Bible's graphic about this. It said the blood splashed on, Jez, on Jehu's horse's legs. And Jehu just went with his horse and just stomped right across her. And the next verse said, and he went in the house and ate lunch. I mean, it really bothered him. He went in, sat down, ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And he's sitting there and he's like, well, she was a king's daughter. She was a princess. She was a king's wife. And she was a queen mother. Because see, in her mind... She's like, because Elijah didn't die, by the way. He just, he was caught up into heaven. And she's like, you can tell a story any way you want to. All I know is he said, I was going to be gone, and I'm still here, and he's gone. I won. Only she didn't. Why? So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void. It will accomplish that which I please. It will prosper in the thing where to us sent it. So he's sitting there eating his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He's like, well, she was a king's daughter. She was a king's wife. She was a king's mother. I guess we ought to go bury the old witchy woman. And they go out there, and all they can find is her skull and her hands. You know what's interesting about that? One of the chief pagan gods that she worshipped adorned herself with a necklace made out of skulls and severed hands. Yeah. Listen, Satan rewards you. you be rewarded by the God you serve. Come on. Amen? Now, <laughs> you can trust, church, that God is always going to do what he said he would do for you. The Bible says that we're blessed. We're blessed. We're blessed going in. We're blessed coming out. We're blessed when we rise up. We're blessed when we lie down. We're the head, not the tail, above, not beneath. We're blessed going in and coming out. We're blessed all the time. The Bible tells me that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And when this is all over, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's not a man that he lies. But what if, what if, what if Elijah would have stayed in the cave? I just want out, God. I just want out. I don't want to do this anymore. Let somebody else do this. I'm done. Yeah, but I've got this for you to do, Elijah. Let somebody else do it. I'm done. I know people that's done that. There wouldn't have been an Elisha. There wouldn't have been a Jehu. I'm sure God would have used some other method, but he would have missed out on that blessing, wouldn't he? What's the message in that church? God will never give up on you. It is you who gives up on God. God will never give up on you. Galatians 6 tells us, be not weary in well-doing, for you will reap in due season if you faint not. You'll reap in due season if you faint not. You say, well, I just don't see how it's going to work out. In my mind, if Joe Frazier would have left that corner, 
and encountered him. I don't care if he just bodily bumped him. Ollie was done. If he'd have left the corner blind, I believe he would have won that fight. We'll never know, but I believe he would have won that fight. You say, I, can't, I don't see how it's going to work out. We don't walk by sight. I walk by faith. Amen. Come on. Not by sight. I don't have to see how it's going to work out. We read in Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heaven is above you, so are my thoughts and my ways above you. They're above knowing. We, won't, we don't know how it's going to work out. We are basically fighting blind. But we'll win as long as we keep fighting. Amen. So I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're in the cave. But if you are, just remember, you're in training. You're in training in the cave. You know what you learn in the cave? You know what I learned in the cave? That it's got nothing to do with me. It is all and always has been and always will be all about God. All he expects you to do is just stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. And the victory belongs to me, saith the Lord. It's not by power, it's not by might, but by my spirit, saith God. Amen. Amen. Well, praise God. Why don't you stand with me, if you would, please? Let me just say something as a disclaimer, lest people misunderstand. I was not demonizing Muhammad Ali or anything like that. I was just using an illustration about two men fighting and how it turned out. I, I'm nobody's judge. That's entirely up to God. So don't get the wrong idea that I was picking on somebody. Just talking about the outcome of two men contending and how it turned out and how it could have turned out. So, and, and that's an, all I meant by that. Amen. Come on, please don't get mad at me. I don't want some big Ali fan showing up like, I'm going to get you, boy. <laughs> oh, please don't. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Amen. In that text. Praise God. Listen, maybe this morning you're in the cave, you're under the wilderness, you're, you're under the bush, or maybe you just want a great victory. I pray that it's always victorious like that for you. My experience has told me that there's mountaintops, and there's valleys. 23rd Psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. You know what that's talking about? It's talking about where we live. We don't live on the mountaintop, church. We're not going to always have the fire and the rocks crashing and the wind and all of that. Those mountaintop experiences are temporary. You got to come off the mountain sometimes. In the valley, was, there was no green foliage. You understand in the biblical text, there was no green foliage on the mountaintop. Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God. It was a place of, of a spiritual encounter. But it wasn't a practical place to live because you can't graze sheep where there's no grass. They lived in the valley. Because in the valley, if, you've ever, if you're an outdoorsman, you know when you get in the low grounds, that's where all the thickets are. 
It's where the green, it's where the water's at, the creeks and streams, and that's where all the lush valleys are. It's also where the bears and lions and wolves congregate because all the animals of prey come there to drink water. He leads you beside that still water. That's great, but there's a bear over there in the bushes. There's lions over there in the bushes, all right? But he says, yea, though I'm walking through the place where I live every day, the place I go to work, the place I shop, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm constantly being threatened by all of this. I don't have to fear that. Why? Because it's not about me and my strength. His rod and his staff comfort me. Even though my enemies are there, he prepares a table before me in their presence. All right. So you may be on a mountaintop. You may be just living right now. I mean, you've just experienced the fire coming down. When, not if, you find yourself in the valley. When, not if, you find yourself under the juniper tree. Those moments when you just, it was great victory, and now it's like I've lost all hope. I don't see the future. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Bad things happen. Get up and get out of the corner and stay in the fight. Amen? If you're there right now, you're sitting there. You're just like, I just want out. I'm done. I don't care if it's your marriage. It doesn't matter if it's your finances, if it's your job, if it's your, if it's your health. It doesn't matter what you're facing. Church, it doesn't matter what you're facing. There's a small, still voice that says to you, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void. It will accomplish what I please. It will prosper in the thing where unto us send it because it's not about you. It's about the great God that we serve who's fighting our battles for us. And let me tell you something about that great God that Elijah learned, and later his his successor would learn, Elisha. Elisha is in a battle. The king of Syria was fighting against the king of Israel, and he was losing every battle, and he said, there's a traitor in my midst. Who's, who, is, who is the traitor? And one of his servants says, There's no traitor in your midst, O king. But Elisha the Tishbite hears what you say in your bedchamber. He sends his entire Syrian army to get Elisha. Why wasn't Elisha afraid? He had already learned the same thing that Elijah learned. Because they're there and here's the Syrian army coming and his servant sees him he said oh Elisha Elisha look look and he's like there's more of us than there are of them and his servant looks at him like he's he's lost it there's two of us and a whole army out there Elisha it's a whole army and Elisha says God opened his eyes and his eyes were open and he saw around the hill chariots with angels all around him church God commands the greatest army in the universe. Not America, not Russia, not China, not Iran, not South Korea, not North Korea. It doesn't matter. God commands the greatest army. And He is my God. He is my friend. He is my keeper, my lover. He's everything to me. Amen? He's everything to you. So we know, we know because His Word is declared... God is going to fight your battles. And you can't lose with God. Amen? Amen. So whatever's going on, 
if, if everything's great in your family, everything's great in your health, your job, your life, the condition that we're living in in our nation is frightening right now. The condition of the world is frightening right now. But it's okay. It's okay. Because God's got a plan and it's right here. His small, still voice is right here. And I've read the last chapter. We win. Amen. We win. Never forget the title of the message is You Can't Lose with the Stuff I Use. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. I don't know who's listening, Lord. Lord, on the internet, God, there's people. I know there's people that's in bad, bad places right now. I say unto you, get out of the corner. Get out of the corner. Don't quit. Keep fighting. God is in your corner. God is in your corner. I don't know who's lying to you. Joe Frazier should have turned around and said, you're fired. And went out and fought. I don't know who's telling you what, that you can't win, that you can't go on. You can go on. Don't stop. Keep fighting. Get up. Shake yourself. And get back in the fight. Because I can tell you now, by the authority of God's Word, that there's greater victory for you beyond the wilderness, beyond the juniper tree, than there was on Mount Carmel. There's another hill waiting for you. There's another thrill waiting for you. So, Lord, I just pray that you just burn that into our spirit today, God. And, Lord, I know that even though right now, God, I can feel it burning in my bones, God, that there will be times that I'm going to sit down and say, God, I just want out. It happens. There's highs, there's lows, there's hots, there's colds. And, but, God, I pray that you strengthen us, Lord, that we never, never Never, never stop fighting, God. Even if it means we have to fight blind in Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. I want to just take a minute to give you that opportunity. If you're here, you say, Pastor, I'm not a Christian, but I would like to commit my life to Christ today. I'm going to ask you to just lift your hands. If you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I've drifted away from God. I was once close to him, and now I've, I've, I've drifted away from God, and I want to just recommit my life to him today. I'm, I'm in the corner. I'm one of those just wanting to give up, and I just want to say I'm, I'm not giving up. God has given me courage today. I'm getting back in the fight. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just raise your hand. I'm going to ask you to bow your head just a minute. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, please pray for me as you close in prayer. I just, I just want to get back in the fight this Hallelujah. Father, we love you, Lord. We just want to praise you, God, before we send everybody out of here. Hunter, why don't you take us to the throne with worship and praise and not close us in prayer.
the service day. Lord, I, I just want to remember, God, I, I pray, Lord, for Cornell, my friend. Lord, I don't know where he's at. God, I pray for his wife, Lord, his three children, God, three biological children, one he adopted. He's getting ready to graduate with her master's degree. God, I pray for the whole family, Lord, that they come to know you in a very real way. God, commit their life totally, wholly, and completely to you, Lord. God, I pray for that whole group of men, Lord. Pray for Will Brown, God, and his family, Lord. God, I pray for Dale Page, Lord. God, I pray for, for Mark, God, and his son, uh, uh, Derek, Lord, I, I pray for God, Athena, his daughter, Lord, their whole family, God. Lord, I pray for Preston and Pelkey. God, I pray for George, God. Lord, the whole group, Lord, I don't want to just be a, a, a witness there to them. Lord, I want to be their friend. I want to be their family, God. I want to see them come into the kingdom and to know you in a very real way. So, Lord, I pray that you just, just speak to their heart, Lord, that they commit their lives totally and completely to you, God. And those, Father, that we work around, Lord, co-workers, why don't you just right now, church, just think about somebody that you've been witnessing to and just call out their name right now. Let's just pray for them, Lord. We want to see the lost come to you. And I, I don't know that those men are lost. I'm not their judge. I don't know where they are. But, God, if they don't know you, God, if they don't have a relationship with you, I pray, God, for them and for their family that they would build a relationship with you, God, and know you and the power of your resurrection, God. Commit their life totally and completely to you, God, in a very real way. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray a blessing over every home that is represented here today. God, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit would just reside there in their home, Lord. It'll be a place, Lord, where they can escape the world, a place where you're welcome, Father. Strengthen the families today, God. Husbands and their wives, parents and their children, siblings, one with each other, God. I pray a special prayer for those who are walking their journey alone, God. Single ladies looking for their husband. Single men looking for their wife. God, guide their steps that they find that person, Lord, that you selected for them. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. God bless you, church. Hasn't it been fun this morning? Come on, that's been fun.